Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it On January 20th, we posted a blog titled Like Pheasants, Thank a Coyote on the Pheasants Forever Facebook page. That social media post generated a whopping 430 shares and 369 comments, ranging from unhinged vitriol to unapologetic praise of the post. Response on Instagram was similarly passionate. For those who did not take the time to actually read the blog beyond the title, here's what that post boiled down to, the basic premise boiled down to in four points. Number one, coyotes are not major predators of either adult pheasants or hens on pheasant nests. Number two, coyotes are, however, major predators of the small mammals like raccoons and possums and mink and weasels that do eat pheasant nests. Number three, coyotes not only eat those small nest predators, but they also push other more efficient pheasant predators like fox out of their territory. So in fact, fox being more prolific, if you have coyotes in a territory, uh, it actually pushes those fox out and they don't have as big of an impact on pheasants. And number four, and we'll underscore this one, it's uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are indeed habitat conservation organizations. And our philosophical approach is always grounded in the science that high quality habitat and a high quantity of habitat mitigates the impact all predators will have on a healthy wild bird population. Nevertheless, that article generated so much social media conversation that I felt it'd be a worthwhile podcast conversation on the topic of pheasants and coyote population dynamics for this episode of On the Wing podcast. And I'll note, I'll say it again, this is about pheasants and coyotes. It's not about white-tailed deer and coyotes, wild turkeys and coyotes, waterfall, or any other critter that you love or try to influence on your property. This is about pheasants and coyote population dynamics. So I've got with me three experts in the field, Dr. Tim Lyons of the Minnesota DNR's Upland Game Research um, Division, Dr. Nicole Davros, also with the Minnesota DNR in Wildlife Research, and our very own Aaron Keel, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat Programs National Director. Oh, and by the way, Aaron studied this very topic for his master's at Iowa State University. So after that long-winded preamble, I'll welcome uh, our guests into the conversation. Let's, let's start with Tim. 
Tim, thanks for joining. Uh, maybe just start with a little bit of background about who you are, where you're from, and and um, you know where you went to school, and then a little bit about your expertise on this particular topic. Yeah. So you said I'm Tim Lyons. Uh, I actually grew up uh, southwest suburbs of Chicago, uh, but I spent a few years bouncing around in different tech jobs. I went to grad school um, for my master's and PhD at the University of Illinois. And I spent four years after my PhD uh, researching pheasants in Illinois. So some of these very same similar topics. Nicole, why don't you give us a little bit about your background um, with the DNR and where you're from? Sure. Yeah. Well, like Tim, I also grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, um, but I spent uh, the majority of my adult life living and working elsewhere in the upper Midwest. Uh, so over for over 20 years, um, I've been studying grassland birds and Upland Game now um, for the majority of my career. I actually also did my master's at Iowa State. I did not overlap with Aaron, but I'm also alumni of Iowa State University and then went on to University of Illinois to do my PhD work. Um, my PhD work wasn't looking at grassland birds or uh, predators necessarily, but I was looking at density effects on a migratory songbird. So I think it has some applications here when we talk about re predator removal and kind of how populations might fluctuate in response to that. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit of my background. All right. And then Aaron's been on a couple of podcasts with me over the years, uh, normally talking about our seed program. Um, welcome back to the podcast episode for folks that haven't listened to you before, maybe give an uh, overview about who you are and um, then move us into your research as a grad student. Sure. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you again. Um, so I would say that uh, I grew up in southern Minnesota, which is ironic. We've got some Minnesota folks on the call, too, um, and uh, then went to the South Dakota State University, where I did some research as an undergrad on pheasant survival, especially in the winter. Uh, and actually, that's really where I picked up my passion for, for upland bird hunting, which probably shouldn't be surprising for very many people. South Dakota is known for that. Uh, went down to Iowa State for my master's worked under Bill Clark, and I know he was a guest on this podcast talking specifically about predators, has a lot in his uh, background around that. Uh, and I did my research looking at how predators uh, kind of forged across the landscape. So where they went into and out of blocks of habitat, of course, a lot of that also revolves of, you know, reviewing all the past researchers of predator activity. So that's kind of where I got my start on the predator aspect um, of this. Currently, I live in Illinois, so another Illinois connection now. Uh, not in Chicago. I'm, I'm near Springfield, <laughs> uh, but been with the organization Pheasants Forever uh, for 22 years now. So uh, know it pretty well and have definitely had this conversation with a number of passionate individuals across my career. Well, so, okay, so let's start there. Um, when you saw us post this particular story on social I'm guessing you could have predicted this response based on your 22-year career with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Or did it surprise you, Aaron? No, not at all. It, it definitely didn't surprise me. It's, it's one of the things that uh, that relationship between predator and prey is interesting just from a biological standpoint. I think it uh, really activates our passionate volunteers, chapter leaders, hunters. They really uh, like to talk about that. And honestly, if you think about a hunter and a conservationist, they really... Um, they're interested in doing whatever they can to help their birds survive, right? And predators mm -hmm. obviously eat pheasants. Coyotes are a predator. It happens. Um, so 
Yeah, not unexpected. All right, so I want to get in. I want to. Uh, so for Tim and Nicole, you know, I've traded emails, but we have not talked about this topic. So I haven't um, predisposed you as to, you know, what what your position should or shouldn't be. So as, let's tackle that blog's premise. Um, Tim, number one, the blog said, coyotes are not major predators of either adult pheasants or hen pheasants sitting on the nest. Is that, the, so number one point in that blog, is that scientifically scientifically accurate? Yeah, I mean, you could argue what major is, but I would say they're definitely not the majority. Um, more, not more than 50%. I think you'd be hard pressed to find any particular species that's more than 50% in any of these cases. Um, but yeah, there are a lot more other, more common, more abundant predators, and they are definitely the ones that are overwhelmingly responsible for mortalities, either of adults or of nests. I do agree with that statement. Okay. So, um, Nicole, the next premise is that coyotes are, however, major predators of small mammals like raccoons, opossums, mink, and weasels. So um, is that true, that coyotes are not, um, coyotes are actually eating those small mammals that are higher, have a higher propensity to eat nests? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think the first thing to realize is that it's a rough world out there for any of these animals trying to survive. And uh, mm -hmm. most, most animals aren't going to pass up a free meal. Um, but by and large coyotes, you know, they're, they're going to be eating lots of things. They're, they're primarily, primarily carnivorous. So they are going to be eating a lot of those smaller predators that do tend to prey on, on bird nests. Um, but coyotes will mix in some vegetation and fruits and things into their diets too. So, mm -hmm. Um, you know, when, a, when you got a winter, like we do this winter, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you're not going to pass up a meal. So, um, I do agree with that statement that, you know, coyotes really are major predators of some of these other things, you know, some of the things missing from that list too, they're going to be eating small mammals, um, like, you know, uh, mice and 13 on ground squirrels and rabbits. And, you know, so a really varied diet and they're going to take what they can get because it's a rough world out there and they need to eat. Mm -hmm. Tim, the third point that that blog made with, and this is one of the more controversial elements of it. And, and that's that coyotes um, actually push out fox from their territories. And, and because fox are a more efficient predator of pheasants, that it by eliminating coyotes, you actually welcome in predators that are more efficient at targeting pheasants kind of does that logic make sense tim yeah there's actually a fair bit of evidence for that i think some of aaron's work that aaron's been involved with um actually found that same sort of thing maybe not his particular thesis i can't recall the details but um you know before the show i was kind of looking up some stuff too and even going back to 1995 uh some of the it was with duck duck nesting but i think the again the premise is pretty sound um that in areas where you had coyotes, you had higher nest success. When areas that were dominated with that, with lower coyotes and more fox, you had lower you had lower nest success. So this is not a new new phenomenon, um, mm. but yeah, it's definitely I think it's definitely true, and I think it's also applicable to even just the things like raccoons, possums, other predator, other things that would eat pheasant nests. To um, you know, there's the direct consumption of them that kills them, but even just mm -hmm. having them around um, the territoriality just you know, they are potential predators. 
all those other animals are going to alter their behavior in response to. So um, they still might be in the area, but they're going to be behaving differently, and that also can benefit, you know, reduce, reduce predation pressure on pheasants. So Aaron, I could see you shaking your head in affirmation. And since since Tim is referencing a, a research project you did, <laughs> I should probably steer the conversation to you to, to, for you to tell tell us a little bit about your research work and you know what you're thinking about as we're talking here. So the the first thing, just I, I want to echo Tim's comment, like it's changing the the smaller mesopredator behavior. Right. So the easy way I think about it is a raccoon. So they're going to be tied to woody edges in general, but they might be tied more closely to that woody edge because they're fearful, we'll call it, of a coyote being out roaming and tackling them too far from their escape cover. So if they're tied more closely to that edge, that means more of the grassland next to that edge is available for higher nesting success for those pheasants. Hmm. But and, and honestly, on that edge effect, like there is a very well-documented edge effect uh, for a lot of nesting birds, grass and nesting birds. So the closer they are to an edge, the more likely that nest is to get depredated. That, that's very true for raccoons along woody edges, even skunks. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a hard edge. It could be a wetland edge. It could be just the difference in um, short grass versus tall grass or introduced grass species, pasture grasses versus native grass. So any of those edges, certainly uh, the predators are foraging along. And that's what my uh, project really focused on is how those predators are foraging along those habitat types. So I had um, different stations set up along long linear edges, along corners, and just like every hunter will tell you, if mm -hmm. you want to see a lot of wildlife activity, go to the corner of a habitat type because there's going to be a lot of ingress and egress out of that and into that habitat. And that's what my study, I guess, confirmed is that there is a lot of movement at the corners. Uh, and I guess the, uh, the take home message that I like to talk about is if you had big chunks of round habitat, there aren't any corners on that. So you just end up with a lot of dizzy predators going round and round that circle because <laughs> they don't go in on the sides. An oversimplification, but it's not just the amount of habitat, but even how it's um, configured and arranged next to other habitats affects predator activity. Hmm. So uh, explain that again. If, if there's habitat without corners, um, predators are less effective. Did I catch that accurately? Well, the corners focus of predator activity is what's going on. So if you think about a large block of grass um, mm -hmm. in one section out there and a coyote's traveling to that block of grass from another piece of habitat it's been foraging on, it's going to aim for that corner, whether that's mm -hmm. a concave or convex. It's just typically what happens is in and out of the habitat occurs at corners. If they're traveling alongside it, they don't do a lot of in and out movement along the side of that habitat. Hmm. Um, tell, talk about how habitat, it may, it may be intuitive, but just for the sake of who we are as an organization, talk about how habitat can mitigate the impact of predators, Aaron? So um, there's a lot of different ways that habitat does have that impact, both on the pheasant population directly, but then also on how it relates with predators and, and other environmental factors. So generally large blocks of habitat are better 
there is a sweet spot. If you get too large, you actually end up getting out of kind of the pheasant range and into more grouse. And then there's this impact on groups of habitat or clusters of habitat versus small isolated parcels sometimes have a higher nest success because you know, no one's going to eat at that restaurant because there's just not a lot available. I want to get into some of the specific comments when we have a lot of them <laughs> on the social media feeds from, from our followers. Uh, before I go there, um, I want to give a shout out to Onyx uh, as a sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and On the Wing Podcast. Do you use the code pheasants or quail? At onyxhunt.com, you can get 20% off your Onyx membership. Um, Onyx is helping our organization create more habitat, more wild birds through that habitat, and more places for all of us to go chase those birds. And again, pheasants or quail are the codes you can use for 20% off at onyxhunt.com. All right. We got some really good questions, some really brutal questions, and some just plain angry questions on, uh, on the social media feed related to coyote and pheasant population dynamics. Let's start with Tim. Um, one, well, There's a number of folks that essentially had this spirit of their comment. This blog is BS. I'm going to keep killing every coyote on my land to help the pheasants. Is this person truly going to help pheasants on their property or are they actually going to end up doing the reverse, Tim? Uh, best case scenario, uh, they do nothing. And yeah, worst case scenario, they're going to have the exact opposite effect like you mentioned. Um, as far as pheasants go, I mean, everyone, I feel bad too when I see pheasants out foraging in a crop field right now as snowy as it is but the reality is it doesn't really they adult survival is not a huge factor in how many birds you have um, at any given time particularly in the fall um, the average bird maybe lives two years three years if they're lucky a hen breeding so unless you have abysmally low pheasant survival like we're talking 20 percent overwinter survival which we don't have here even in minnesota um, you're, you're not really making any gains at the population level um, and the worst, the worst case scenario is you're doing things worse. There's been some work uh, in the southeast. I think it's Georgia or North Carolina. I can't quite remember now. They they actually looked at coyote response to when when people try and cull coyotes. They were focusing more on deer. But because coyotes don't really have any real predators, the only thing that's limiting their populations is themselves. So their own abundance and density. And what are you doing when you remove coyotes? You are reducing that density, and so they're completely able to compensate by producing more pups and follow, you know, following any sorts of removals like that. So, um, yeah, you're welcome to try. Um, but like I said, best case, you're doing nothing. Um, and worst case, you're, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. So that, that came up, which you're, I think, alluding to. So I want to ask a follow-up there. Um, there are commenters that claim there's research out there that when a coyote population is suppressed or reduced, their natural response um, is to kick in breeding at a higher level. And the, the commenter on Facebook called it coyote compensatory reproduction. Um, Tim, is that what you're referring to? And is, that, is there truth in that? 
Yeah, um, that's part of that's exactly compensatory reproduction. Um, you know, when we talk about hunting, we think about compensatory mortality as being a thing for survival in our game species, but the reality is a lot of it might be through other mechanisms. So reproduction is one, um, especially Nicole, this is sort of Nicole's area of expertise. Density dependence, it's, it's a broader concept in biology, ecology, what have you. And yeah, like it, at some level, um, it regulates almost all wildlife populations. Um, hmm. You know, so um, maybe not every year, maybe not all the time, but it's it's a it's at play. You know, it's t- it's territoriality. It's why you see maybe some more male pheasants running around. They're they're you know not able to secure territories to breed. So that's that's a density dependent you know problem there. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't say problem. It's a density dependent effect. So it's not you know there's a lot of there's a whole slew of things, but. Yeah, coyotes are the big one. There's, you know, now there's well-documented evidence for that. So thanks to those folks that did that study, um, that it is. I mean, again, you can remove them, you can knock their numbers back, but they are going to be back in force you know, mm. after after breeding season. Uh, Nicole, Tim mentioned that this is kind of your area of expertise. Anything you you'd add to that um, line of thinking? Yeah, so I, I don't know if I'd say area of expertise, but uh, like I mentioned, my my uh, dissertation work kind of looked at the effects of density on various things like reproduction and stress hormones and things like that. But the bottom line is, you know, we have abiotic factors like weather um, that affect populations, and then we have biotic factors. So things like, you know, how many competitors do you have? So uh, how many other competitors, coyote competitors, do coyotes have? Or how many... Um, uh, you know, foxes do they have as competitors and things like that. So that's kind of what we think of when we think of density effects is is the impact of those biotic factors on an in, like an individual population. Um, so in this case, yeah, if you, like Tim mentioned, you have, you know, fewer coyotes in the area, there's more resources for you. So you can have higher reproduction. You know, an individual female might have more resources. She's able to more successfully birth more pups. Whereas when you start to have a higher, you know, so you kind of get this growth curve. And, uh, you know, I'm gesturing here, but I realize this is a podcast. No, it's all right. that, as you get as you get higher up on that growth curve, you have more individuals in the population. Well, now there's fewer resources to go around. And so that can be what kind of brings a suppressive effect to that population and keeps them from ex- expanding, ex- expanding, you know, uh, to infinity, essentially. Um, so so that's exactly it is kind of you can get this, uh, you know, compensation effect that occurs at lower levels where you have more resources to go around and at higher levels um, can decrease. So, um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll leave it there. You know, and uh, another question for you, Nicole, when Tim was talking about, you know, pheasant populations and adult carryover, like, you know, 20% of the adult population is really sort of just to get a baseline, right? But most of the time it's higher adult carryover than that. But what really influences pheasant ebbs and flows in the overall population is nesting success, right? So so talk about that and why, it, I, again, why connect the dots for us with nest predation. I mean, it's intuitive, but that's where the bigger impact is for predation, right? Yeah, and this ties back to what Aaron was explaining, you know, these sort of edge effects and area sensitivity. Area sensitivity isn't really the right word to use, but there has just been a ton of research and a ton of documented evidence that um, more habitat means more pheasants in the end. 
Um, so just having larger quantities of habitat in the landscape matters for pheasant reproduction. They have higher nest success in these landscapes with more grass. The one exception, as Aaron hinted, is sometimes, I, I think of it kind of as a, um, uh, a small, medium, or large. You know, if you have a small plot of, of habitat um, and it's in the middle of a bunch of other habitat, then it's going to be really easy for a predator to come in and maybe search that really effectively and eat up all the nests that are there. If you have a medium-sized habitat, they can still be pretty effective in their search efficiency, but if you have a lot, a lot of habitat in the landscape, it gets a little harder. Um, you know, it's like... Uh, um, you know, how easy are you making the buffet for them, <laughs> potentially. Mm -hmm. But the one exception would be if you have a small chunk of habitat in the middle of nowhere, well, most of the, the predators are going to be likely congregated elsewhere in the landscape. And so that one small piece of habitat can actually have some high nest success. Um, but our goal is to have a lot of quality, you know, quality and quantity of habitat in the landscape because, again, time and, time and again, going back to... Um, you know, studies out of Iowa State in the 90s, uh, some some work by Tim and, and mine's predecessor in Minnesota DNR and, and others have shown that having quantity of habitat in the landscape improves pheasant nesting success. And then as Tim mentioned, you know, there is some winter mortality, um, you know, by and large when, you know, our managers will go out and pick up roadkill birds, they have a crop full of food. They're not, they have plenty of fat reserves. Um, so it's not really winter that's getting them. It's usually like being hit by a car or maybe they're having to leave their cover to, uh, to, to get to food. And so they're more easily picked off by a predator. Um, but we know that we can handle a certain amount of, of winter mortality. It's, it's having enough hens available for nesting in the spring and having high reproductive success because um, pheasants are basically, um, you know, a very prolific breeder if we give them the right conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, think more about the intersection between quality of habitat, quantity of habitat, and predator success. I always find it, uh, I've found it easier, Nicole, to think about, like, if, if your best habitat, like a roadway ditch, right, and that, that linear cover has lots of edge to it. So if I'm thinking of, about a coyote running down that ditch edge, bouncing from side to side, really easy for that predator to be effective at finding adults or nests. Cause there's just like you, like Aaron mentioned, the edge is all around. Right. But when you talk about like so many States and federal agencies are trying to create blocks of habitat. Part of that is to mitigate the impact of predators. So, all things can sort of live in more harmony. Is that a good way of thinking about it or am I simplifying it too much? No, I think that's it. I think, you know, our goal is we've really changed the landscape. You know, modern man has really changed the landscape and our goal is to kind of recreate um, maybe, you know, how a lot of these animals evolved on the landscape. And so that to me means having some balance and balance mm -hmm. means having habitat and not just roads and development and, uh, you know, corn and bean fields, you know, we need those things too, but we also need to have that habitat in order to sustain these populations. So that's a perfect tie into the next question that, or next comment. Um, so from Facebook, person writes, this is all well and good in a perfectly balanced environment. I believe coyotes wouldn't play that big of a role, but where I live, that's not the reality. 
Um, how big of a role do does the so if, if this person let's just say this person lives in Illinois, right, where there's a lot of which you're both very familiar with. There's just not as many. I guess all three of you have Illinois connections. There's just there's a lot of fragmentation to the habitat. Um, and the, it is in a perfectly balanced environment. Because of that, this person's arguing coyotes are just going to be more effective in the landscape we've created in 2023 than 1990 when, you know, Aaron would have done his study. Um, is that an accurate extrapolation on the, on the Facebook posters part, Nicole? Um. I think it's a bit of an oversimplification, you know, again, are coyotes, you know, eating pheasants and or their nests? Yes, sometimes, but there are a ton of other predators out there as well, too. Um, so like Tim's already talked about, you know, you know, predator control, um, coyote control on these small habitats might, might help, but you might just be, you know, making the coyotes have better reproductive success in future years, mm -hmm. or you might be allowing other predators in, um, Nest predation is really not that simple, and I think we like to oversimplify it a little bit too much. Go ahead, Aaron. I was going to say, and in those highly fragmented landscapes, coyotes might be uh, more effective, but so are every other predator out there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's based on you know their ability to forage through that habitat effectively. All right, Tim. One more question for you in this this line here um, line of conversation. There was a bunch of comments related to raccoons um one particular said raccoons seem to be doing just fine where i live amongst all the coyotes that particular comment was liked 45 different times which is a pretty massive amount for uh, a comment to be liked on um on a facebook post for us tell us a little bit about the raccoon coyote um, dynamic and you know is it, how how much of a predator are coyotes towards raccoons um i'm not a mammologist so i don't 100 percent know um and i think that's also maybe maybe the wrong way to think about some of these things um you know because animal doesn't have to eat a whole lot of it to still be a you know efficient control um but I'm, they certainly do occasionally. But again, coyotes are going to eat mostly small mammals, you know, mice, voles, um, squirrels, ground squirrels, things like that. They're just easier to catch. But I think the the biggest impact that coyotes have on raccoons is is a non-lethal, like a fear thing. Like Aaron mentioned it earlier, and that, that you know, so you can still have raccoons running around, but they're just not. They're, they themselves are no longer as efficient predators um, as they would be as if if there weren't any coyotes around. Um, it's sort of a, okay. they call it a paradox sometimes. It's somewhat paradoxical. Um, one of my lab mates in grad school, actually, that, that's like a, a large phenomenon. Um, if you look at, it's not pheasants per se, but um, it could be pheasants now because I just saw an article that pheasants are now running amok in Detroit. Um, but you see a lot of what we think of as predators of, you know, not just game birds, but other birds and other species and other critters as well. They have really high abundances. Uh, in urban areas, yet the things we measure, like nest success, oftentimes are lower in, or the, the nest predation is lower, success is higher in these areas where we see more predators. So there's this, it's a paradox, um, 
and the explanation typically is there's either other they're relying on other resources so uh, raccoons maybe aren't eating pheasant nests even though they, they do they do eat pheasant nests but they aren't relying on pheasant nests um, you know they're stealing grain out of grain bins other things like that um, you know or it's because there's there are predators around and they're segregating their behavior um, they're avoid doing things that avoid predators so they're they're still there they're just not behaving in a way that would make them super problematic necessarily or as problematic as they would be in the absence of again say a coyote hmm. um, you mentioned that coyotes are not a real um, high they, they don't predate raccoons at a high level what does what's the number one predator of a raccoon uh, cars, maybe. I don't know. It depends on where you are. Um, yeah. No, I honestly, honestly, I don't know. Um, that's sort of, I, I know, it's a shortcoming of mine that I don't know that. Um, but I mean, I think that's you know, there's there's so many things that do that will kill a raccoon, um, mm-hmm. a coyote, could be another raccoon. Um, you know, people, wild other feral animals, hawks, raptor, other raptors, owls, things like that. They all eat raccoons, um, you know, but, you know, they're still able, they still persist, you know, even a lot of areas where those predators are high. Um, you know, I think with any any sort of thing, you'd, outside maybe a few specific, you know, relationships, you'd really be really hard pressed to pin down, oh, this prey species is really heavily influenced by this predator. Because um, most, most species relationships aren't that specific. Hmm. They're pretty broad. There's a broad base of things that will eat a raccoon. Um, none of them necessarily rely on eating raccoons, but that's a really interesting comment, Tim. That you know we and I think I'm guilty of this too, where we automatically think um, you know you want to influence pheasant numbers, you want to influence bob white quail numbers or rough grouse numbers, so you. You think, well, goshawks are eating all the rough grouse, right? Like, because you, you know, fundamentally in non-biologist mind, you're like, okay, what's public enemy number one? And we, we probably all have seen a coyote with a rooster pheasant in its mouth running down the highway. So it's real easy to get from A to Z. It's like, that those coyotes are eating all my birds, you know? So, but the, but the reality of, population dynamics as you just mentioned it's it's not there there are very few species that you can directly correlate predator to prey like a equals b that accurate uh, kind of overview of what you said yeah i'm trying to think back in my in my limited experience with mammals predator and prey the few like textbook examples that folks are probably familiar with whether it's lynx and hare or like mm-hmm. mink and muskrat you know far up north the reason why those are sort of very tightly coupled in terms of you know, predator prey and population cycles, it's because they're very specialized on those things. They are not eating other animals out there. And that sort of doesn't hold. I mean, that tight relationship between like mink and muskrat, um, that really breaks down as you move further south and move into areas, you know, that where mink are now feeding on a much more diverse suite of prey items. Um, I think anyone would be very hard pressed here to suggest that, um, coyotes are very specialized to eat pheasants um Mm -hmm. it's almost certainly not the case um i think the other thing too when you start thinking about predators um there is a fair amount of evidence from this even with bob whites too um 
even if you're removing predators and you are effective at removing predators, um, there's always there are oftentimes compensatory shifts. Um, something about of a uh, study in particular in uh, in the South with Bob White Nest, you know, they they successfully removed all a lot, I say all, a lot of you know potential nest predator mammalian nest predators of Bob White. But then snakes came along and you did, didn't see a huge change in nest success there as a result. So um, mm. I think that just it, that these these systems are a lot more complex and yeah, you know. It's it's complicated. Um, and that, that's what makes it very challenging to actually be effective at, you know, having predator removal, not just have a, a ch an effect on say, um, you know, from the duck nesting literature, duck nest nesting success. But if you're actually interested in population growth, um, there are very very few examples where that's ever been shown to be hmm. a effective man effective thing, and certainly not an efficient one. I would say. Nicole, you had a comment. Yeah, I, I mean, Tim's Tim summarized it there really nicely that it's complicated, and I, you know, I like to joke that this is what gives us a little bit of job security, um, because, you know, each system is a little bit different, uh, you know. But going back to, I think predation is a lot more complex, and uh, predators are a lot more um, uh, less selective in most cases than people think. Um, but you know, that said, the the really cool thing is. Uh, there are some studies to show that individuals can have learned behaviors. It's just sort of like, I prefer caribou over Starbucks. So you're more often going to see me going through a caribou drive through than a Starbucks. You know, there are some predators out there who might have individually learned behaviors. Um, so on one person's property, you know, going back to, you know, the, the first comment, you know, I'm going to keep killing coyotes on my land to help pheasants. Mm -hmm. You know, there is some work out of, I think, the Delta waterfowl system showing that predator control year after year after year after year in these smaller systems is effective but it's it's really labor intensive it's really time intensive and so on one person's property again maybe they'll see something happen maybe there's also going to be some sort of compensation that happens um and and maybe they have coyotes that are a little bit more specialized on raccoons on that property or on pheasants or this or that but as a whole when you take a step back look at the bigger picture um it's complicated <laughs> there's mm -hmm. no one size fits all approach and um, and I think that's what what makes you know studying all this so cool to do is that is that um, the systems are just so complicated. And it, there were a fair amount of comments that you could tell that people were projecting their interest in uh, managing their property for a variety of different species: white-tailed deer, turkeys, and pheasants. When, when they start trying to do that, like uh, approach it from a hunting season perspective, right? So they, they're trying to manage for a variety of things. The dynamic shifts or changes a little bit, doesn't it, Aaron? Uh, it do, does. Um, so, I mean, I think Nicole said, you know, there are preferences out there. There's... Uh, like there's a Hollings disc equation that's kind of a famous one in the predator prey stuff. And uh, predators will switch their focus, uh, their search image to the most abundant and easily available prey. So uh, hmm. that's one of the arguments I've used against uh, pheasant stocking, for example. If you throw, up a throw out a bunch of pen raised birds in an area, Kyle's going to be like, oh, wow, this is the best lunch. It's easy to catch. They're stupid. I'm going to grab them. Well, they've also switched their focus now to pheasants 
which means that coyote is learning to be more effective on the wild bird population too. So stocking could have a detrimental impact just on the predator-prey relationship in that local area. So, I mean, that's, you, can you extrapolate that and say, okay, here's, here's a state that does do a lot of released birds. So in that state, could uh, coyotes be more focused on pheasants than say state right next door that doesn't release birds at all? It, 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 or is that too simplified? I think you could say that on an individual like wildlife management area or something, if they're releasing a lot of birds on that area for hunting, hmm. I think all the predators are probably going to switch because it's a, a readily available resource that's you know, somewhat easier to secure. It's hard to draw that over an entire two different states, but I, I can see where what you're saying. You Like you say, you release pen-raised birds that have never encountered predators before, and they are... I mean, anybody that's hunted a game farm versus hunted wild birds, they're dramatically different in their um, instincts to survive. They're not going to be smarter for a coyote, right, versus a hunter. They're, you know, so they are going to, um, you could see how they would become sort of tasty treats for coyotes in a particular area. Um, Nicole, you know, again, this is, I'm trying to draw large generalizations right through these, these uh, conversations. And it's, that's pretty difficult it, with science. It, it is complicated. Um, but we'll go to, if, if coyotes are generally considered public enemy, number one for pheasants, public enemy, number two is generally considered raptors. Uh, is that true? Are raptors having, a population level impact on on wild pheasant numbers or is that you know all part of the dynamic yeah i'm i'm gonna make some overview comments and kick this one to tim because he actually looked at this with his dissertation work um but uh you know again bottom line i don't think we have a public enemy number one i think we have you know public enemy top 10 you know of maybe what what eats out, you know, what eats pheasants, pheasant nests, pheasant adults, whatever, um, chicks, you know, and I, I go back to, these are wild animals trying to survive. And in most cases, they're probably not going to pass up a meal if they're hungry enough. Um, I just had a, a male kestrel at my bird feeders the other day, you know, and that surprised me a little bit. Am I completely surprised that I had a kestrel trying to pick off a chickadee or a little house sparrow or something? Um, not entirely, but it was cool to, cool to see. And, you know, mm. I think just kind of a sign that times are rough out there right now, but yeah, Tim, <clears throat> Tim had some really cool work with his dissertation where he had these automated telemetry towers and was able to look at what time of day, uh, pheasants or hens in particular were killed. And so I'm going to kick this one to him to answer. Yeah. Like Nicole said, um, during my PhD, we were going to try and use these towers to triangulate pheasants for us and that didn't work out. But what it did give us was, like really cool information about we could tell when when birds were incubating nests and even when they were getting killed and uh, I actually look at my dissertation to know exactly what the numbers were but uh, out of 52 out of 70 birds that we you know had radio collar that died uh, 52 of them died during the daytime so at, well af after sunrise uh, could be within that sort of dawn time too but um, yeah the majority were during the daytime so kind of we took that to mean it's it's most likely a raptor um, 
I've had people tell me when I've shared this information that it just shows that coyotes will kill pheasants during the day too. Um, but again, my my uh, my gut and kind of what we saw out there is that it's and sort of some other things that we saw. Like I said, um, it's probably raptors. Um, you know, uh, so they are killing the majority of pheasants, but by no means is that was the pheasant population we were studying hurting at all. Um, it definitely was growing. It had really high nest success rate. Um, and you know, that like you said, that's just some. That's just it happens. Birds, are, you know, no animals really live to die of old age. Uh, something will kill right. them. Um, and if it's not coyotes, it's going to be raptors. If it's not raptors, it's going to be something else. Um, but they are, and I think that's fine. I mean, you know, we talk about with predation by things like by coyotes and raccoons. The the focus there is on providing larger blocks, fewer edges and corners. Um, there's something similar with raptors. It's not necessarily the amount of habitat. Um, because some ha- raptors like harriers really like large grassland blocks, but it's what you plant in it. And for us, I mean, we could pretty much, based on, again, the data we collected, it looked like you could almost eliminate raptor predation by having areas of tall native grasses. Um, so this wasn't Minnesota. Like right now, all of our tall native grasses here in Minnesota are, are all filled in with snow. Again, this was down in central Illinois, but, you know, having those wetlands with cattails where the pheasants like to go and roost, um, Mm-hmm. That keeps them safe from the overhead predators, and that's, I think, why folks typically... We do see pheasants running out to woody cover during the daytime. Um, they're trying to avoid that overhead, you know, raptor predation. So, mm-hmm. um, again, they eat them, but it's not... It's by no means a population problem. Right. Uh-uh. So to, under, to underscore that, it's, um, you know, we we often refer to predator perches, right? It's, it's the trees that, um, that are bare, that a raptor can sit on the branch and just scout out birds moving through the grass and drop in and, and attack. So the more you can have continuous blocks of grass without predator perches, the less of an impact raptors will have on pheasants. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I'd even just go so far as even if there are some, um, the bigger problem with woody cover is probably still going to be your nest predators that are going to use that mm-hmm. as a way to, encroach further into the site um mostly also because i don't want folks to get upset if they do see a harrier um which doesn't hunt from perches they glide and they they hunt so i know more complication when we're looking for simplification (laughs) and generalization um but i mean again it's it's you know it's a matter of what you put in there i know folks Mm. there's a lot historically we've really liked putting in clover and alfalfa Mm. um that's that's gonna you know it's not gonna protect a pheasant um, you know, na- taller native grasses. Um, they don't like to hunt in that. It's harder for them to hunt in that. Not impossible, but harder. And again, that's what we found was that we you know, pretty much remove, you know, in areas with where you have like a 200 meter block of, you know, where pheasants are using tall grasses, they're not getting preyed on by raptors. So. Mm-hmm. It, Nicole, I, I think of, I've interviewed a fair number of quail biologists in the last year. And, you know, one of them recently referred to Bob White Quail as nature's chicken nuggets. And I'm sort of thinking about that from a pheasant perspective, too. We got to remember that pheasants, quail, rabbits, I mean, virtually everything eats some of our favorite small game upland bird species. So that's that is part of the reality of this population dynamic. Everything eats them the the benefit is they can produce a lot of birds through good nest success in reproduction a reproduction cycle that 
reacts to favorable weather and favorable habitat very quickly. Um, so you do get really um, positive swings up, up, well, up in good conditions, and they can go down in bad conditions. Is that part of what we're talking about here, Nicole? Yeah, I think so. I think if quail are the, you know, the, the, the tasty nuggets of kind of the bird world in general, I'd say pheasant chicks are probably the, the tasty nuggets maybe of, you know, raptor predation. Um, I, I think if raptors are preying on, uh, on pheasants, it probably is more during that, that brood growing stage. Um, mm. You know, like Tim said, um, harriers, they're, they're a slender hawk. They're, they're probably, you know, a pheasant might even weigh, weigh more than they do. So I, I don't see them picking off adults, but yeah, I, I think that's the thing is good years and bad years. We have drought years, we have wet years, you know, in a drought year, um, maybe we have fewer small mammals being produced. And now other predators like coyotes or raptors are having to prey switch and rely on other things. And um, so I think, again, it goes back to it's just it's complicated. We're going to have good years. And we're going to have bad years. And all of that is influenced by both those biotic and abiotic factors that, you know, we, we have some control over the, the um you know, the, the biotic factors like habitat and, you know, predator um, populations and things like that, a little less control over the abiotic, but, um, uh, that's just the nature of it. There's going to be good years and bad years and upswings and downswings and, and pheasants again, being prolific are going to be able to overcome that, you know, most of the time if we give them the right conditions. So Aaron, as we move towards the close, you know, you studied biotic factors, right? So predation as a grad student and and then you went and worked for Abiotic, the Habitat Organization, if I got my vernacular correct. So um, there is one thing that we can influence, right? We can't influence weather. weather. It's pretty difficult based on the conversation today to really influence nature's top 10 predators. But at the top, very top of that list, it all comes back to habitat again, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's it's always been about habitat, um, and I commend the the folks of the shoulders that I you know started this organization. They made that uh, decision pretty early, and it's all based on on good hard science too from our partners at BNR agencies across the country. Uh, I, I'll tell you if if the research showed something different, if it said, oh yeah, removing a a, a coyote helps the predator or the pheasant populations. I guarantee pheasants forever would be right on board with doing that, but that's not what the research shows. It shows that habitat is is what we need. Tim said tall nesting cover, diverse nesting cover. That's the same things we're preaching because it's good for pheasants, um, just in terms of their nesting. And then if you throw in good forb diversity in there, you get some brood rearing benefits too. So uh, it's always about habitat. Hmm. I I think about like, you know, habitat is the hard thing to influence, right? It costs a lot of money, a lot of time. Um, predation or predator control isn't any easier. Why, why do people just general public gravitate towards predator control? Well, so uh, I think the, I think it's thought to be easier, right? So trapping or hunting of predators as a recreational um issue seems to be easier, right? So I can go pheasant hunting, I can go coyote hunting. It, it's easy. And if I'm controlling the population, great. But really for trapping or any removal exclusion efforts to be effective, it has to be done during the, the nesting season, right? Because mm -hmm. that's when those predators are having that effect. 
we don't trap at that time. Um, the other thing, if you think about it, the reason we hunt pheasants, we're hunting that additional population that we don't need to carry that population. The same is true with trapping um, methods or shooting predators. I mean, the state agencies have set it up that that's what it's a sustainable practice. We can continue to hunt and trap uh, predator populations without detrimentally impacting their populations. Uh, Bill Clark, who I mentioned earlier, they was on a, a study with raccoons in Iowa, and they showed that even placing bounties on raccoons in this case, they couldn't suppress the population low enough to get past that compensatory mortality factor. Mm -hmm. So what you were ended up with is lots of young juvenile raccoons in the spring who are foraging greater distances, likely encountering more nests. So you may have actually, even within that single species, increased the predation rate on raccoons. The same could mm -hmm. be true on any of the predators. Hmm. You know, and for clarity, pheasants forever is not against trapping. You know, we, oh, we yeah. are, right? We, we, we don't have a negative position on trapping. All we're saying is that in terms of um, trying to influence pheasant or for that matter, quail population numbers, the top of the pyramid, the center of the bullseye, the number one thing you can do is create higher quality in more habitat. Is that an accurate statement, Aaron? Yeah, definitely not anti-trapping. I'd say, in fact, we could be quite the opposite, right? It's a great way to engage people outdoors in recreation, just like hunting, fishing, going for a hike. Uh, and, and we've had a number of events where we actually partner with a lot of trapping organizations to teach some of those skills to new and interested uh, trappers out there. So we're not anti it, but the research isn't showing that done as is, is a way to influence pheasant populations. Absolutely. You might save a bird, right? That gets eaten by a predator, mm -hmm. but you're not actually influencing that population. All right. As we round out to a close, I'm, I'm going to ask each uh, of our guests uh, their closing thoughts for, for this conversation. But first of all, I definitely want to thank you know, it, it can be a very controversial topic. So thank you all three for weighing in with your time and expertise, Tim, Tim Lyons, Nicole Davros, both of the Minnesota DNR and Aaron Keel, um, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Zone. Um, let's start with Tim. What's, um, what's your final thought as we put a, a bow on this conversation between coyote and pheasant uh, population dynamics? Uh, yeah, I just think the big take home, you know, from all the literature out there and all the stuff, um, even if you can measure an effect of predator removal, um, it's typically limited to a single life stage. So you're not actually increasing the population overall. You might be increasing nest success, hmm. um, and not necessarily the overpopulation overall. And again, you know, just as many studies out there that find an effect, a lot don't. And I don't think that's a sample size or a study design issue. I think it just shows that there is a lot of variability. And, um, but one thing that they all still show, even the studies that do look at predator trapping, um, habitat is far more consistent. Um, and you know, the amount of money that you're gonna spend, you know, controlling predators, you know, that's never gonna go away. Whereas if you do improve that habitat, that's gonna be more, more consistent and it's gonna be there you've done it you've done made that improvement it's always going to be there yeah. so um again 
I don't have strong feelings about trapping one way or another. I don't do it. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking like Aaron, if it was effective, I would say it was. It's it's just not, um, especially when you start looking at something like you know what habitat protection can do. Right. Uh, Nicole, your closing thought. Yeah, I think Aaron and Tim have both hit on it pretty well. You know, we stand on a body of science and a lot of, you know, the shoulders of giants, you know, people like Bill Clark um, uh, at Iowa State and, and others who've just done a ton of work in this realm. And, and we, we know what direction that's pointed us in, which is, you know, the habitat matters. Um, and for me, as somebody who does have this scientific training, it what makes it exciting for me is it, you know, it allows us to answer other questions as a scientist. So, you know, Tim and I work in Minnesota DNR's Farmland Wildlife Populations and Research Group. And, you know, it allows us to ask new questions that focus more on where we can make a difference. So, you know, putting habitat in the landscape, but now... Uh, Tim's recently started a, a cover crops project looking at how pheasants are using um, or how, pheas how pheasants are using cover crops or how cover crops might influence. And that to me also has a, a way, you know, a, a potential to really impact the work that we do in a farmland landscape because pheasants do rely on farmland landscapes, as Tim mentioned. Um, we're not going to get away from that. And so uh, I appreciate that we've, you know, have this body of science to, to rely on and, and, um, uh, and can maybe ask different questions in the scientific mm. realm and uh, and just focus on the habitat and move on to other questions. But <laughs> yeah, you know, folks who want to go out and trap is how they choose to spend their time. But, you know, for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And, and uh, the bottom line is predator control and predation in general is, is complex. And mm. um, it, it's the science kind of stands. Aaron, what's your final thought after, you know, hearing this entire conversation, doing your, your research, your, your master's research on this topic? What, is there something we missed that you'd like to deliver home as we close? Not miss, but I, I think what I'd like to do is just recognize those hunters and conservationists and their passion that you've commented on that blog. That's, that's why we are where we are. I mean, we, mm -hmm. they need to continue to challenge um, researchers and practitioners to do what's right for pheasants um, every day because that's how these studies get you know started in the first place without their interest and their passion you know if no one was interested in pheasants we wouldn't have this body of research to draw from so really appreciate all their mm -hmm. energy they want to do everything they can to benefit pheasants um, and and I'm excited for that that's that's kind of our mission is to help pheasants um, and quail, and we do that largely through the habitat we put on the ground. So one takeaway for me for a research study is giant pieces of habitat that are all circular, that don't have any corners, is going to be the highest potential pheasant production on record. If, are we going to prove out that theory, Aaron, or am I full of it? <laughs> Uh, I think that would not prove successful, but uh, who knows? <laughs> Center pivots all around. Yep. Right, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much for um, for joining me for this conversation. Super helpful. I, you know, certainly the takeaway is it's, it's very complex. Um, what isn't complex, at the top of the pinnacle, if you want to influence pheasant numbers, it's getting high quality and quantity of habitat on the ground for the uplands. That's gonna produce 
all the pheasants that you're trying to influence, whether it's on your property or your favorite state's property. I'm Bob Sapier, thanking um, Tim Lyons, Nicole Davros, Aaron Keel for joining me. Thank you for listening. And as Aaron mentioned, thanks for being engaged in our habitat mission through Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, and I'll remind you, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>